0: Hello everyone, welcome to day two of Cold Chain Energy Week. My name's Shane Brennan, and I'm Chief Executive of the QK Coal Chain Federation here in the UK, or at least I am for the next couple of weeks anyway. This is our third annual Energy Week event week, energy week event, even. And it's great to see so many of you taking part in today's formal, in yesterday's formal launch of the Cold Chain Federation Energy Benchmarking Initiative, a project that was two years in the making and it's a credit to the work of our little director tom southwell and the team that have put that together i'm really optimistic that that uh, will provide a real resource for all of our members who are thinking about how to improve and to understand the performance of their buildings in the uk coal chain before i get things properly underway i have to say a big thank you to our sponsors and they are the pnm group who many of you will know best as the construction company isd solutions but they have other uh, strings to their bow as well as, as well as my power and Onsite energy who are two of our long-standing partners with real expertise in energy solutions for your cold chain operations today we're going to try something a bit new with the our energy week format uh, rather than a presentation or a panel discussion with a range of voices we're going to be interviewing one expert delving a bit deeper into them their background and their perspectives on the big issues shaping the future of cold chain especially cold chain manage, uh, energy management within the cold chain our expert is professor judith evans who yeah, is uh, employed by the london south bank university but many of you in the session probably know judith but those of you that don't we are genuine in the company of a world-class expert her biography tells me that she has more than 35 years of experience in research related to refrigeration and energy use She's a leading figure within most of the networks that are influential in our world, the Institute of Refrigeration. She's a key member of the Centre for Sustainable Cooling, which we're going to talk her about, and she's a regular advisor to UK government and others on all the issues related to energy management in the cold chain. Today, we're going to ask her about her background, her current research interests, her views on both the future of cold chain in the UK and globally, as well as the ways in which she thinks businesses and academics can better work together to drive innovation and improvement towards big goals. So I'll be leaving the questions. Please feel free to put your questions to Judith along, on the console panel provided, which I can show you now. Um, and I'll keep an eye on those as we go throughout the conversation. Um, but yeah, just, just type them in. If we don't get to them during this sort of flow, we'll see if we can answer them after the event. Right, without further ado, can I welcome Judith? Are you there?
1: I am. Hi, hello. <laughs> Thanks for the flattering introduction.
0: Oh, well, yeah. Um, it's just part, just, just 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 a small part of, 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 of the things that you've uh, you've achieved in our in our industry, Judith. So uh, it's great to great to have you with us. Um, like I say, this is just a chance for you and I to have a conversation about um, about uh, about your background and also what you think is current in the energy space. I think you know I've been in this industry now five years, and I think it's a pretty exciting time. For, uh, yeah. for research in our, in, our, in our industry, and certainly seeing lots of different tracks, and I want to sort of get into the, of the skin of those. But like I say, let's start with asking a bit about yourself. So, how does a, an academic person like yourself get involved in cold chain? I often ask people in the, who run businesses that question, but I very rarely ask someone who's doing the research. How did you come to start thinking and researching with refrigeration issues? I mean, I
1: suppose I suppose, like um, many people in refrigeration, I. I didn't actually choose uh to work in refrigeration um i mean they they say that um, most people come into refrigeration either because their family is involved or because they fall into it and i i i fell into it basically i i started more as a food scientist um And worked with a team that dealt with refrigeration and uh, just became more fascinated and interested in it um, and gradually sort of transitioned across to to refrigeration um, and have worked in the area ever since.
0: And within the food science space I mean obviously refrigerating food is obviously a key part of food science but is it properly, does it get the credit and the focus that it deserves do you think within the food science
1: space? Possibly, possibly not. Uh, a lot of people in food science, you know, deal very much with, um, uh, you know, constituents of food, how they work together. Um, you know, refrigeration is, is part of it. I mean, I, I started working in a big um, research institute and there was lots of different departments and one of the departments really um, dealt uh, with, mainly with refrigeration. Um, so it was, it was valued at that time, but uh, yeah, many of the food research institutes that exist today, they're very much more involved in, uh, you, you know, developing, uh, you know, texture or some particular attributes of, of the food. Um, you don't have those sort of institutes in the UK anyway, uh, anymore that uh, have got a really big balance of different departments that all deal with different, different things related to food.
0: Okay, brilliant. And as obviously, so, so so transitioning out of the food science research into into refrigeration specifically, what are the main sort of milestones or things or areas or projects that you sort of worked on over the over the, over the period? I mean, sort of, can you give like a helicopter view of how your research interests have evolved?
1: Yeah, I suppose really. Uh, the, the first the first project I actually worked on on refrigeration was domestic refrigeration, um, and looking at um, you know, at energy consumption, temperature control. Um, and I suppose it was probably the first project I was given quite a lot of responsibility for so I really really enjoyed it because you know I was able to shape how it's how it works and manage it and uh, you know that led me into being probably more interested in refrigeration in the air and then I started working on you know lots of different other areas in in refrigeration and uh you know gradually became more and more involved in it.
0: I'm I think you know, I think energy, sort of some of the seminal sort of research projects that I, that I know that you are a lead author of around energy efficiency and understanding energy use and refrigeration, have how, how that evolved as an, as an area of, um, of concern or interest in that time, you know, where, where we sort of, when you first started looking at these issues, do you think that the academic community and the business community were really thinking about the energy consumption that went into refrigeration as a key consideration?
1: no definitely not um when i started working energy wasn't really that important um i mean we were saying for a long time that energy was important and people should be looking at it but they're just um, you know really people weren't interested because energy was quite cheap and (laughs) you know so to make a business case you know for for applying technologies or doing something in a different way often wasn't there um so, yeah, it's only more recently, really, that people have come a lot more interested in in energy and, you know, people didn't really talk about carbon when I started working either, which is obviously, you know, the, you know, massive buzzword now. Um, yeah. Nobody, nobody really was that concerned about refrigerants um, either. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of work. Uh, it's really started by some colleagues of mine at, at, at South Bank, but uh, it was a lot of work on, on, on refrigerant leakage as well, which, you know, is, you know has, has led also to looking at where emissions occur in the food chain, fugitive emissions. So um, yeah, there's been some big changes actually over, over time and people have become, you know, a lot more interested, I think, in some of the areas that uh, I was interested in when I started working.
0: And when you're thinking about and how projects have merged and evolved, and something that's like, sort of not a world I I occupy, and I it's one that you day-to-day life for you, is sort of where you find the funding and the research to actually go ahead and sort of kick off the research. And obviously, there's the one hand there's the research grant community, on the other hand, there's continued business investment in research and other sources. How do those sort of dynamics play out in terms of the selection of projects that you've been working you've worked on in the past, or how you see that driving the agenda of, of what gets looked at
1: mm-hmm. i mean in in you know in the academic scale, we're quite practical academics, uh, but you know wherever you are on the academic spectrum now you you need to involve companies and get get them involved um, at different different sort of levels um you know sometimes it's it's just letters of support saying that they're interested in the work but um in the type of work we do we tend to try and involve companies more more deeply uh, i mean for example in the in the european project we're involved in we're involved in a lot of demonstrations and the companies then are really involved in those demonstrations because they're the people that are hosting them uh, you know they may even be building the demo so uh, you know there's a lot more involvement there they may even be partners in the project for example as well sorry, sorry. Yes, the money
0: itself. is coming from coming from a research grant institution of some kind in most cases rather than directly funded by By businesses themselves, or is it a combination?
1: Yes, yeah. Um, I mean, generally in that in that case, the money is coming either from uh, you know some sort of UK government source, uh, either a government department uh, or from a research council, which is basically funded by by government or European Commission, um, or sometimes you know other international organisations. But yes, more or less, always always in a research sense, uh, the money is coming from some funding funding body. Uh, Occasionally, we might work directly uh, for industry, but most of our funding is coming from uh, research grants.
0: Okay, and so think about now then in terms of how would you categorise the main areas of, well, actually, let's start with the landscape rather than your specific work. What what would you categorise as the main areas that that, that are cold chain research in, in the energy space that are happening right now?
1: I mean there's a lot of work on quantifying emissions uh, because there you know there is is quite a lot of difference between different reported emissions for different different sectors and so there's a lot of work um, quantifying both the uh, you know scope one scope two emissions Um, so that's that's a huge piece of work we're involved in, in in several different projects there's, there's other work uh, where we're looking at reducing emissions, um, mainly, uh, mainly electrical. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other big area of work uh, where we're working on is developing coal chains in, in developing countries.
0: There's quite a lot of varying, I mean the first two we relate to each other and the third one is quite a fundamentally different kind of exercise, I guess.
1: Yeah, it also sort of feeds in in terms of the efficiency and, um, you, you know, we've gone through a sort of transition in terms of refrigerants in uh, in, in Europe and in a way you want those developed countries to not necessarily have to go through that transition to move more quickly you know to low GWP refrigerants for example than than, than we did and so you know they're not um, investing in equipment that um, is only going to last them perhaps for a few years you want to encourage them to, to move to better alternatives but also to provide the support the training uh, that underpins all of that.
0: Yeah, I mean, to add on that a little bit more. Obviously, I've heard you know if you, there's a lot of good sort of outputs from from sort of the experts in that particular space around particular centre for sustainable cooling around the the cold chain building challenge. You know, as we as, as the world gets richer and as developed countries evolve in terms of their food need, if they were to build the cold chain that we have in that we rely on in the West, if you like, then we'd have a huge energy problem that would Offer that. Is that broadly how we characterize yeah. the kind
1: of it, it depends on how you look at it if you look at it in in emissions terms there's already huge levels of emissions because there's huge levels of loss at the beginning of the food chain so you know typically uh you could be talking about 30 percent of the food that's produced is, is is lost and it can be it can be incredibly much higher so yeah. at, if, if you start looking at, at emissions then you know, you can come out with a a positive balance as long as you're putting in efficient systems. Uh, You are obviously going to increase, you know, electricity use, but there are huge opportunities, you know, for using renewables in those countries. You know, the issue really is that um, you're you're increasing capex, on systems but opex is 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 really good so you need um you know incentives and business models uh to be able to you know make sure people do put in the best systems and they're they're properly designed to integrate into a renewable system
0: we really end up sort of moving out of the sort of technology conference questions into the into the business motivations and kind of systems building Mm -hmm. kind of considerations which are you know Sort of such so, so a fundamentally different kind of area of conversation. I'll come back to the minute, but let's, let's go back into the issues around emissions and quantifying emissions. And you know, I think most of the businesses in the CCF membership would recognise the growing expectation and pressure to better define what the emissions they are responsible for are, and probably driven mostly by the by the expectations of the customers that they're working for around their, their goals. Um, how optimistic or how realistic do you think it is that we're going to end up in a situation where there is a common understanding of how you quantify emissions from? from I that mean,
1: field? I think I think we're we're getting better. There's several projects that are that are working on emissions, particularly the the ticker project is working on emissions from the UK. Um, I mean, we're also looking at it as part of a, a big European project which covers the UK, but obviously other other uh, European countries as well. So yeah. I think sorry enough project yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, we are, I think we're getting better um, at at quantifying emissions. Uh, I think, you know, you're never going to be 100% certain, but we're getting better in our, in our uncertainties through these projects. And, you know, I think, you know, they are, they're valuable projects, because the emissions figures at the moment, uh, you know, do have some levels of uncertainty behind them and if we're going to then use those figures to forward project and look at what's going to happen in the future and you know what the impacts are going to be it's it's quite important that we we've got some accurate baseline figures to work from
0: yeah and and, and i know that's certainly the the motivation behind things like the uk government's TICA project
1: Mm -hmm. what does TICA stand for again transport industrial commercial refrigeration
0: yeah. And, um, and it I just
1: covers those those areas, but it also uh, it covers um, you know, data centers and chemical as well as um the obvious ones that are included.
0: In terms of if if I was to sort of I'm sorry to put in the spot or anything, but if I was to summarise the kind of maths of how you put together an emissions kind of calculation for coal chain, what are the sort of elements you're adding together, would you say in terms of the main emissions? Okay.
1: Element? I mean Uh, I think we started by using uh, government figures um, and and looking at the um, you know the accuracy of those and um, often going back and asking further questions to government departments about how they put their figures together Um, but then we've also looked at lots of different methods as well where we've you know taken for example numbers of uh, of um, appliances or items uh, looked at uh, what we think you know an average energy consumption would be or emissions from those and then calculated them up. So, the idea really is we've done quite a lot of different calculations coming at it, at it from different angles. Um, in the ticker project, they're also using the HFC Outlook model, which has got a reasonable um, stock model with included within it so some some of it's based on some of the work we've be, we've done um uh looking at you know how much energy different um areas of the cold chain use, so looking at things like specific energy consumption in cold stores, supermarkets, for example, you know the um, all the information we've got on uh energy used by domestic refrigerators in the home because some of the figures may be for domestic for example are based more on energy labeling and test standards and you know one of the things we found in the past is that the energy label doesn't necessarily relate that well to the energy use in, in the home, for example. And there's lots of reasons for that. Um and I'm not necessarily I'm not saying in any way that an energy label's a, a bad thing, but I'm saying, you know, that people use their fridges in the home in a different way to the way they're tested for an energy label. Um but looking at That's lots of
0: more case than there is industrial, would you say? Sorry? Oh is it more the case than it would be in industrial refrigeration uses or is it actually the same principle applies in an industrial context as well
1: no i think as well one of the things we found looking at cold stores is that you get huge differences in um you know in specific energy consumption which is usually uh kilowatt hours per meter cube per year um ideally we'd perhaps have a better metric like throughput but that's incredibly difficult to get the the, the data um and so but- we're Huge, huge oh, differences. Right. Yeah, sorry. Well,
0: mm-hmm. right. just to just but just to sort of like sort of summarise, sort of most um, simplify it down. What are the so if we add together, we're adding together the electricity consumption or the the, the the specific consumption of the facilities, the transport emissions of moving goods around, the packaging and the gases involved. What are the different kind of component parts do you think of of of, of, of an of, a, of an emissions equation in the coal chain?
1: I mean, generally, we've looked at um, what the, you know, scope two emissions are from the electricity uh, that's used and then scope one emissions. So from the fugitive emissions um, and emissions from from fuels, so basically gas, diesel, and then we've often looked at packaging and waste as separate separate items.
0: Yeah, and in terms, so that's it's it's such an important area, and everyone sort of I think I'm really pleased to say that people are more and more thinking about this, and there's more and more sophisticated understandings coming through from the academic guidance, but also from the companies themselves trying to work out how to best report this stuff to suit their needs. Um, What do you think? What do you think is ultimately one of the questions that I struggle with in this, and it's trying to work out whether a cold chain third-party logistics provider or even the cold chain division of a retail company or a manufacturing company. Am I doing my equations on my emissions as the centre of it with scope one, scope two, scope three from me out? Or am I just one component part of somebody else's emissions equation by either retailer or manufacturer? So am I essentially a scope two, slash scope three consideration of somebody else's measurements? should i be doing it for myself or both or how does that dynamic play out do you think in the end
1: i mean i think there's the logistics of the calculations and Mm -hmm. you know people have spent a lot of time working out the scope one scope two scope three um you know sort of methodologies uh but you know i i also very much you know like to think of things as systems and you know how how things interact between them and so uh, you know when you when you do your uh your your you, when you do your emissions calculations you're very much looking at yourself but you know on the other hand you 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 ought to really be looking at how you affect other people and if you're having a negative or positive impact on other people you know further down or up the chain than than you but i'm not sure that really uh you know happens widely at the moment um and it's, it's, it's not really, it's, it's a difficult scenario to include, in mm-hmm. a way. Technically, uh, <laughs> you're not, particularly not owning the chain.
0: I think, I think you, can see, you can see how it gets pushed down. You can see how retailers will set themselves a their net zero ambition, a big retailer, for example. And then mm-hmm. they will then ask their suppliers down the chain to provide information to help them to make a calculation for a whole chain thing. But if you're sort of in the middle of the chain with no control over it, it gets harder to sort of see yourself in that context, I would imagine.
1: Yeah, and I'm not sure whether, I I don't know really whether they look at where all the emissions are occurring in the chain and then say, you know, potentially, you know, you should be doing better or, uh, you know, maybe if we change the chain in some way that we could make it, you know, a lower carbon chain. So, you know, ideally, you'd look holistically at the whole of the chain and look at how it could work better. But you know, people are quite focused in on their their own emissions. And, and, yeah, and I I can the, see practically how that happens. It's very difficult, you know, to to make it otherwise. But ideally you should be, you know, you should try and look more holistically. Yeah,
0: but but I guess what you're doing with the ticker project and, and what the researchers looked at is trying to be more granular in what the different elements are and how you come up with standardised calculations for the different emissions, whether it's the cost or emissions or the transport operate units with emissions to try and therefore give people the building blocks to put together in the way they want to report their emissions
1: is that yeah that? and also looking uh, very much at what the emissions will be in the future as well yeah. um and whether they're going to increase or decrease um and how much and also looking at different scenarios as well yeah. so yeah. you know what can change in the future and what impact is that going to have
0: do you have a sense um, of how important we are in this? If you take, it, if you sort of look at it you know, I think um, you know there's going to be a COP 28 uh, mm-hmm. meeting in a month's time, which I've, I'm going to be at. Are you coming along? Are you going to COP 28?
1: Yes, I am actually. Yes, yeah, I'm going to be there.
0: We'll both be out there. Um, but um, I'm going to see. There's a, there's a there's a there's a whole section of the kind of COP and UN issues around cooling and within that refrigeration food system. I mean, there's a
1: cooling day, so uh you know that's that's interesting isn't it which is going to be the 5th of december so that is the the cooling day and it's being broadly you know labeled as the cooling cop yeah, you know, by some people so
0: and so within cool so 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 within the overall challenge if i sort of work my way up from there how important is coal chain in this kind of global emissions challenge and, and sort of the kind of Decarbonisation challenge. I mean, so I think it's, sometimes you can present it really as a really, really huge thing. And sometimes it starts to feel a bit more like tactical and small. Where where does it sort of sit in that balance? Do you
1: think? No, I mean, it, you know, food food as a group is is, is massive. Um, it's it's not just you know the 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 direct uh, you know emissions from uh, refrigerants or from you know electricity use. It's, it's also the huge levels of food loss and waste that occur in the chain as well. So um, And, you know, it's more than just emissions. It's about resilience and sustainability. Uh, you know, the chains are uh, incredibly important, um, you know, to provide you know, just-in-time food to consumers. So it's, 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 it's huge in the general uh, worldwide scheme.
0: Okay, I'll ask you a bit more about, about developing world coal change in a minute, and the, and the work, particularly the Centre for Sustainable Cooling in that in that space. But but before I do that, in terms of so thinking then, so we talked about like quantifying emissions and, and understanding the kind of scorecard. In terms of reducing emissions, um, where do you see the balance between technology doing the heavy lifting and finding innovations that will drive emissions reductions versus behavioural change in the coal? Mm-hmm. Chain. And where do you think think those two will play out in terms of in terms of achieving reductions overall?
1: Yes, interesting dynamic because you can make a case that a lot of technologies are are available now, and there's a huge amount of um, you know energy saving, carbon savings that could be achieved through through technologies. But uh, I mean, one of the things that's been coming back uh, from the ticker project, in particular, the work that um, uh, you know Dermot Cotter has been doing is that uh you know there's a real issue around skills training maintenance mm-hmm. um, and so technology can help you in a certain way with that because you can make things more automated you can have better diagnostics automated diagnostics for example that help people um, but you know you know the, the the one of the sad things in the ticker project is that the work that's coming back uh, particularly particularly on, on cold stores is that the issues are very very similar to the issues that we worked on about 10 years ago in another project and you know a lot of the issues are around um maintenance and skills uh and yeah uh, there is a, there's a massive massive issue not just in the uk i mean it's, it's it's a worldwide issue uh to have better trained and better skilled people and just encouraging people into the industry in the first place
0: yeah yeah and I guess having that day in day out incentive and prompt to to do the right things when it comes to managing energy in a in a cold chain environment i guess is a is a, is a, is an ongoing thing, and I guess different businesses have different levels of focus on that and and I guess from one day to the next there'll be different levels of energy applied to that kind of challenge,
1: yeah, I mean there's huge other challenges placed on people you know just to get food out the door and get it get it delivered so uh, you can see why people get you know diverted because of uh you know they they're firefighting a lot of the time to make things things work and keep things running um, but you know some companies do have bigger picture and you know are working on these things but you know ultimately uh you know I think one of the biggest issues that we we have as as an industry is is training and skills. I mean, it's, you know, everywhere you go now, people are saying that, you know, they're, they're struggling to get good people and, uh, you know, people with good, good skills.
0: But can, but can AI automation be the solution? I mean, you may refer to it already, but if you can start to de-skill or remove the, the skill need from, from the operations through, through automated, through monitor, remote monitoring, through remote intervention, through kind of those sorts of systems, maybe that will be the way to counter the skill gap.
1: Um, yes, potentially there's a lot you can do. I mean, there's there's um, there's quite a few uh, teams working on things like digital twins as well. I mean, Star have got a system, uh, you know, where they they make a digital twin of a cold store, for example, and other and other people are working on on on, on digital twin systems of various complexity. Um, And so those are really useful and particularly if you can predict when things are going wrong or or you can measure when things are starting to go wrong, you can actually do something before it's an emergency. So, you know, there's lots of things you can do, but ultimately you do need some people with with some skills and you can can do some level of de-skilling and you can help people by um giving them some information before they turn up of what's wrong and maybe sending for example the best person making sure they've got the right kit with them and the right equipment um but ultimately you still need people with with skills you know even if you produce a digital twin you need somebody with skills to build that digital twin. so you know maybe you're moving also away sometimes from um you know some some hands-on skills to also some better uh, you know programming skills as well because you know when you talk to cold stores that run automated systems you know they're they're saying that perhaps the jobs of the future are more programming you know skills to be able to operate that store and, and and manage it but I can't quite get away from the fact that you need people with you know good design skills so you've got to be able to build good systems that are energy efficient in the first place and you know you've got to have some level of, of maintenance and people with skills to be able to maintain those systems um, and, be and be you know, you're, not, you're not getting enough people coming in at the moment to be able to do either of those. And It's got to be ongoing you can't just design
0: something at the start and and then just let it run for 30 years it's got to be constantly monitored and updated and maintained and, and, and given the love and attention that it needs to do the job properly I guess.
1: Yeah, it's one of the big problems we found. Uh, I think um, Dermot's finding the same in the Ticker project, but we found the same in the cold store audits we did as a part of a big project about 10 years ago, that you've often got, you know, a store may be 30 years old, for example, but it was actually built to, you know, really good specification in the first place. It may not be top, top specification for today but it's pretty good still but over the years you know things have drifted things have changed you've had people that maybe didn't understand the system properly and how it was how it should be running and you know it's really fallen off informants which is what what i actually like about the sort of digital twin um type of approach in that you know you've got what it should do from day zero and you're looking at why it's not doing that that today
0: yeah can I ask you a, a big picture question, and one that's come up a few times when I've, when I've talked to members about this is the balance between being more sort of keen in how we use energy to do the job refrigeration versus the challenge of, gener- of generating more energy to do the job, clean energy to do the job in the first place? Because you could construct an argument that says, actually, if you're using electric to do the cold refrigeration job and you can get an abundant source of clean energy, then does it really matter how efficient you are and how you use it in terms of sort of the decarbonisation challenge in where 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 does the balance fit?
1: <laughs> I, I think I think it does because you've still got to pay for it. Uh, but ultimately, you know, our energy is going to come more and more from from renewables. And yeah. you know, the 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 argument is that um, you know, although a lot of renewables have been put it put in place already, that it's more challenging as we're putting more and more renewables you know for example uh the recent um, you know tender by the government for um, wind farms wasn't well taken up for lo- for lots of reasons but partly because it's more difficult to put them in uh all the easy winds have already you know been 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 made and also because of inflation but um uh you know if we're using more renewable energy uh you have to integrate better with the grid as well um because you're not going to be producing electricity exactly when you need it, so you've got to incorporate storage of some sort of energy storage into the equation, um, and you've got to use that energy, you know, uh, intelligently.
0: Yeah, and I guess there isn't really a realistic horizon for cold storage operations being energy independent. Are generating all the energy they need for themselves? They are still going to be dependent on a grid system. Or the energies
1: that they that they need um, I mean most cold stores we've looked at which have got solar on the roof are mm. sized to be about the peak midday load um, you can obviously put in more more renewables uh, some cold stores we've worked with they have wanted to put in wind turbines but they've had difficulties due to due to planning and not being able to do that so you can obviously put in in, in more renewables uh, but you are going to have to have some sort of a storage whether it's thermal or battery um, so it, it depends really whether you've got the space to to be able to do that or not but in theory i mean we're looking in africa at um, smaller cold stores which are um, you know pretty much grid independent yeah uh, you you can you can build build those size of cold stores to be pretty pretty independent of the grid. Um, it's, uh, it may not cover 100% all the time but pretty much if you've got storage you're, you can design it to be the be off-grid. Um because
0: all regimes and depending on site, So 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 is that the same for a frozen cold store in the same way it would be for a chill cold store or it's,
1: it's possible if you've got enough if you've got enough uh renewables, but it's really have you got the space to be able to do that? I know in some cold stores I've been to, uh, you know, theoretically you could cover more of the roof, but for very practical reasons you aren't able to do it because you need to have access uh, you know, to um, you know, condensers, for example, which are on the roof. Um so it, it depends really if you've got the space if you've got the space uh it's it, it, it's it's feasible but um yeah. you know a lot of cold stores don't even though they're in you know reasonably urban or you know outside town areas
0: can I ask you a question about temperature regimes in two ways first one the first one is we know that there's increasing you know particularly for our biggest Facilities in the UK and around the world, the opportunity potentially to be to act as batteries themselves by actually mm-hmm. overcooling, taking energy at the surplus load from the from the grid at times of of surplus, freezing down significantly lower than usual yes. temperatures. Do that. Um, and do you see that as a? I mean, how big an opportunity is that? Do you think is it actually quite a small one in the grand scheme of things, or is it something that you think? Um,
1: like I mean, it's de- it's definitely an opportunity. I mean, coal stores already already uh, already do it have done it for a long time through load shedding uh, to get you know the better better tariffs um, no there's definitely there's definitely opportunities and people are um, you know getting more uh, involved in demand side response I mean supermarkets do it uh, now uh, cold stores do it so you know there is there's then huge uh, which,
0: what about what about driving bringing it on more i guess i guess we, we, we're better at turning stuff off when, when there's a peak when there's a peak demand than we are about taking more on when we when there's more abundance of energy on the grid i guess it seems to work way. Yeah.
1: no i mean there there there's huge opportunities uh you know to be able to you know for frozen stores anyway to be able to reduce the temperatures and then let them drift up when you haven't got so much generation on the grid and to use them as thermal batteries um, i mean it's a the thermal battery that's already already there i mean when we're designing our other cold stores uh you know for example in africa we're putting in thermal storage um to to actually cope with that uh you know inertia in uh, in, in supply but uh, you don't need to in a frozen store it's already it's already there if you've got and the more it's loaded the better better you are
0: yeah well, that makes that makes that makes sense and the other question of course is the other way is you know, I think you and I have had been involved in conversations and report writing and through consortiums working on the issue of whether or not we should be challenging the norms and conventions around what we consider to be the frozen temperature of frozen food so the this idea of three degrees and operating up to a minus 15 benchmark rather than a minus 18. How optimistic are you about that as an opportunity for, for reducing emissions and saving energy in the cold
1: chain? Yeah something we've been working on for uh, past year and, 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 and interestingly enough um, it's uh, it's where I started my career working on frozen storage so it's a full circle really um, talking about some of the same things I talked about uh, when, I, when I started. Um, yeah there's, there's certainly a potential we've uh, got a report that's coming out on the 28th of November uh, which we'll talk about this in more detail and we've got information that's going to also cop where it's going to be presented but uh, you know the main issue I think is that uh, if you're going to do it everybody has to do it and but uh, anyway uh, you can you can read all about it in the report uh, which will be uh, published on at the end of november uh yeah. and you know we we're, we're very interested uh, on feedback from from companies on what you think um whether you've got comments you know whether you think it actually might work because there's big companies that are talking about this at the moment you, you know people like Unilever and Nomad have been working on this uh it's not it's not a new idea it's an idea that you know we uh, we were talking about uh, when I started my career, for example, uh, so it's not it's not a new new idea by any means, but there does definitely seems to be more appetite for it now, probably you know yeah. because you know of carbon and energy, which are much more to the fore than they would have been, yeah, you know, when I started my career. And I, and
0: I guess and I guess what we're really talking about when we talk about stuff like this is we're talking about how do you collaborate in lengthen the chain to reduce variability in temperature to try and reduce the sort of drawing down. To lower the necessary levels in order to prevent risks if it goes up above, and if you can if you can equalise or level level out the, the temperature variation in the chain, and that gives you opportunity to potentially use less energy and operate at slightly warmer temperatures because you've got that reassurance, um, and that whether it's a universal minus 15 or a universal whatever is left the key issue as that kind of issue around reducing temperature variance. Is that would I be right in characterising it that way?
1: Um, I mean, you've got more um, redundancy, obviously, at at minus 18, but, you know, one of the issues is, um, it'd be interesting if anybody actually has has the answer to this, but uh, I'm not completely sure why minus 18 was chosen as the sort of default level in the first place, maybe because it's zero Fahrenheit, Mm. uh, and it comes from America. But you know there seems no other reason why minus 18 was chosen above you know minus 17 or minus 20 so you know that's one of the questions really is why did we get locked into this minus 18 or or lower in the first place
0: yeah
1: but um yes uh, certainly but you shouldn't really be um you know getting massive fluctuations in in the chain anyway and so you know you you, you've got more redundancy at minus 18, true, but if as long as you control uh, temperatures throughout the cold chain, you've still got a very safe cold chain at minus 15. But a lot of report. this information is in the report anyway, and you can you can, all, you can uh, you can read it. And uh, uh, you know, like I said, are very interested in, in people's comments because you know at the moment. Um, it's, it, it's a piece which discusses the issues around moving to minus 15 and so you know be interested in what people think and whether they think it is uh, a feasible opportunity
0: and I guess uh, one thing I haven't asked you about unconsciously uh, we said we have 45 minutes to be our time and we're, well, we're coming up on <laughs> 40 or, um, and you could go on for ages but we won't um, I will ask you though about F-gases and HFC generally I mean, obviously, the whole Montreal Protocol direction, global direction of travel, is towards phase out. When when, when is the day we're not going to see F gases being used in the coal chain, and, and and what what is what are the kind of trade-offs or or transitional risks that we're seeing in that space? Would you say?
1: Uh, I I don't know because um, you know, in Article Five countries, you're still going to have HSEs, you know, around for quite a long time potentially. Um, I mean the article you know the article of travel as you call it is definitely you know to low GWP refrigerants and you know probably natural refrigerants as well and you know the the travels very much to less than 150 GWP um, mm. and you know ultimately uh, it depends how long you're going to keep equipment in the market but uh, you, you know my, in my view anyway um, you know moving to you know ultra low or Uh, natural refrigerants is is the only the only option if you're putting in in new systems you seriously should be considering you know the long-term options
0: and the energy the energy trade-offs are less than they used to be in that space as well exactly yes yeah
1: yeah i mean there's you know there's i mean ammonia has always been a good refrigerant anyway for things like cold stores um there's a lot of work and ongoing work on on co2 to make it more efficient and you know what they they call the co2 equator is moving further and further south all, all the time you know the issue is that you know maybe it's uh, you know a capex problem that you have to balance against the the opex but you know they're showing more and more reasonable paybacks on on co2 systems uh and obviously hydrocarbons for smaller systems you know already there really you know there's um you know there's um you, you know no doubt about domestic refrigeration professional refrigeration that are all you know basically using hydrocarbons
0: so just have a quick question on the minus on the fifteen, the minus fifteen or the three degrees issue. How much energy would be saved, do we think, if there was a, a change in the overall benchmark from say minus eighteen to minus minus fifteen? Which is obviously one of the key things in the report. Yeah. But, yeah.
1: Um, uh, I think I think, I think uh, at the moment there's there's things that are sort of embargoed on the report. So I think uh, uh, I'd like to be able to you know discuss widely, but basically. Uh, the report will be published at the end of the month and it's got quite a lot of information. It's got information on what the energy savings would be worldwide and also what the carbon savings would be.
0: So, the, the, the report obviously looks at the end to end coal chain. In terms of storage, specifically, Nomad Foods put out a paper in August saying that they made it, may, it may say a 10% for the storage only. Yes. The storage, One part of the dynamic coal chain. Exactly, um, yes. Yeah. Um, so think about the future then, Judith, and I haven't really, I kept saying I'll ask you about developing world. we're going to run out of time really, but can I ask you in this context, um, in terms of the next phase of your kind of research work, where do you see the emphasis going, of your work going to be? Is it going to be in kind of developed world, cold chain efficiency and drive, or is it going to be about capacity building in, in the developing world, or a bit of both, or how do those two sort of tracks play out from here, do you think, in terms of research?
1: research? I, I think it's both. Um because, you know, we've got a lot more traction on uh, reducing energy, reducing emissions in, in developed countries. But, you know, there's, there's a huge need for cold chains, both for food and pharma in, in developing world. And, you know, I think that's a really exciting opportunity, you know, to be able to improve the li- livelihoods of farmers um, and, you know, to be able to reduce that, those massive levels of food loss in those countries so you know i think i think there's a lot of work to be done there and it's really exciting um you know we're obviously uh working very hard towards the aces launch which is uh, you know next next year we're working on developing a, a load of different systems and demonstrations that people will be able to see um training also for the for the market as well to be able to develop skills uh, which, uh, you know, coming back to that, it's really, really important that we can actually support that uh, cold chain that we're, you know, we're developing.
0: Did you did you think 35 years ago that you would find yourself in Rwanda doing research and training on, on developing cold chain in, uh, in, in that part of Africa or anywhere um, else?
1: no not necessarily perhaps when i perhaps when i was a student i saw myself working in some some developing countries uh but then i sort of got diverted and um no i didn't really um i didn't really see that one that <laughs> that one that one coming uh, it's obviously it was going to be a, a huge a huge issue to develop those uh, cold chains um, and support that but yes yeah, so i didn't really um i didn't really 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 see Rwanda as being the the center so,
0: yeah, we just, just have breaking news on the BBC about Rwanda in other news, we won't talk about it now. Um, yes, the the, 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 the in terms of that kind of the interface between in those two things, though, obviously, you've talked a lot about sort of things like when using renewable energy and, and, and developing solutions for sort of that sort of market environment, very, very warm, very uh, emerging markets like like Africa, like Africa, Africa etc. Versus what's happening in the developed world, do you think there's any things that we learn about doing cold chain in, in places where we're building it new or or, or capacity building that will come across into, into into what we do in in the developed world
1: Yeah, I think there's good transfer either way um there's certainly things that uh, we could be learning uh about uh, cold chains in in developing countries um uh you're right that uh we're dealing often with a warmer environment but, but not in all cases Rwanda itself is not actually a particularly warm african country uh mm. but other african countries we're working in 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 are and you need to be able to cope with those higher temperatures which fits very much back well into uh the issues that we're we're continually uh seeing but yes, there's a lot of knowledge also as well, um, you know, f- that we've um, learnt in Europe, and also things that we we perhaps shouldn't do as well as things we should do, that we can transfer into those those cold chains in Africa. And like I said earlier, to try and make them transition quicker and not go through the negative things, and maybe to actually leapfrog also to better solutions more quickly than perhaps we have done in in Europe. And so that's my kind of
0: closing thoughts then, really, from you two. Thank you very much for this really interesting conversation. And I could carry on at length, and uh, maybe we, we're sure we will in future dates to discuss. Okay, thanks,
1: thanks for asking me along.
0: But um, how optimistic are you sitting today about the future of, of coal chain and, and achieving these goals, particularly these sustainability and decarbonisation goals? Where do you, do you, where do you think we're at in terms of the potential in that in that space?
1: Now, I agree with you, one of your earlier comments. It's a really, really exciting time to be involved in refrigeration and cold chain at the moment. Um I am excited that we can solve um, you know, a lot of the the issues like you like you alluded to earlier as well. Uh it's not just technology. It's it's you know, it's also uh behaviour and training. Uh, and and you know, like I said, I think the biggest thing we we have to cope with is You know training people to cope with these systems and to be able to manage them really well and you know i'm really excited about getting involved in quite a few training initiatives now to you know be able to hopefully overcome those issues
0: great and what's on the immediate what's on the immediate horizon for you and the team
1: Um, I mean, at the moment we're very much tied into European UK projects on emissions, um, you know, looking at roadmaps and technologies and in Africa very much into developing cold chains, uh, developing you know demonstration systems community cooling hubs for farmers to be able to use uh systems for people to be able to try out cold chain for example as well so we're very much tied into that plus the training side as well to support all of it so you know for the next next few years you know that's how 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 i see most of our work is is really continuing on what we're we're doing and uh, hopefully uh you know getting uh, some of this out in the market
0: Great. And we'll share some links after this for everyone on the call to some of the some of the projects that you've recently published about and, and work that's ongoing so that if anyone's got any further questions or want to know more about any of that work, then
1: they can... No, great. I mean, if people have got comments, you know, in particular, the Ticker project, we're very much looking for uh, companies to be involved, uh, you know, to comment on, on the work. Um, so, yeah, if people want to get involved, please, please, please do. We'd love you to get in touch.
0: Julia, thank you very much. Thank you very much for sharing all that expertise with us today and for the work that you're doing. And we look forward to future collaboration between yourself and all the projects you're involved with in the Coaching Federation.
1: Wonderful, thank you. Thank you very much for all your support as well with projects. So thank you, Shane. Thank you, Emily.
0: Brilliant. Okay so i um, just just quickly to wrap up then so obviously this day two of energy week um you know there is lots of resources available to you in the energy space from the culture federation our energy efficiency guides available to download for members on our website we have our ongoing net zero project a range of interesting insights in there about the future of, of state sustainability in the coal chain and a whole range of activity from our associate members and others expertise that'll help you answer questions you might have in your operations so please don't just Focus on us this week. Focus on us throughout um, for your energy uh, questions and challenges in coal chain. Um, so, as I say, a um, couple of more plugs. We have our big events coming up next year in April. Sorry, in March, not in April. Um, which is uh, at the coal the chain climate summit and sustainability awards. We had our first one of these this last year. This year in 2023, it was a huge success. A big sellout and it will be again, so please, please put that in your diary now and make sure you make a plan to come along and talk about these issues in person with some of the experts. Some of the things we talked about with Judith will be on the agenda at that. And in terms of the rest of this week, we have another session tomorrow, a really interesting uh, and important panel on all things renewable energy, with on-site energy and MyPower talking to us about that. And that'll be, I'll be handing over the chairman responsibilities back to my colleague, Tom Southall, um, who will be leading that. So thanks very much for taking part in today's session. I hope you found it as interesting as I found it to help the conversation. And I look forward to um, talking more with all of you about these issues in the future. Thanks everyone and have a good rest of your day.